everyone, and welcome to season two of AA Opera Pod, a podcast that has two seasons. <laughs> For the That's 2020s, we're up in the twos. We're up in the twos, 2020. Love it. Um, if you're new here, welcome. Welcome, welcome, welcome. And if you're an avid listener of AA Opera, thank you so much for joining us again. Yeah, we have some really exciting things coming up in season two, but first and foremost, this episode. It's a very exciting episode. But before we get into that, how has your break been? What was Christmas like? Christmas was really good, actually. Um, I did switch off for an entire week. I know. I couldn't <laughs> reach you. <laughs> that was the weird thing, was that we, we, we're used to being in contact pretty much every single day. And I think it got about three days into the holiday and I was like, is Avi alive? Like, <laughs> you know? But I did actually really enjoy the, the break uh, and feel ready to, to come back and hit the ground running. Yeah. Um, because it was restful. Yeah, and, you know, 2020, I just feel like there's that vibe in the air that it's not only a new year, it's a new decade. It's yeah. the roaring 20s now. I'm excited. I'm waiting for all those Gatsby parties. Yeah. Like- <laughs> yeah. Anyway, how was, how was your holiday? It was good. Almost burnt my house down. So l- sorry. Oh, I didn't tell you about no. this. Oh. <laughs> so I got really cheap Hanukkah candles. Yeah. And one just tippled over from one of our like Hanukkah, which yeah. is what everyone calls a menorah, but it's a Hanukkah. Right. <laughs> Fun fact. Fun fact. <laughs> and it tippled over, and we had a really cheap Aldi tablecloth, and it just caught fire. Wow. So lessons to learn. What. It was all safe. There was tinfoil under everything. It should have been fine. It just buy expensive candles and tinfoil everything. And maybe don't trust an Aldi tablecloth. <laughs> also, also. But cool. yeah, luckily we were home. Don't yeah. light candles and leave the house. Oh, fire safety, everyone. Yeah. yeah. We've got a, a lot to tell you guys. So um, yeah, stay tuned. But let's get on to this week's podcast. We have Jonathan Freeman Atwood. Who, who, if you don't know who Jonathan Freeman Atwood is, um, he's the principal at our conservatoire, the Royal Academy of Music. And he kindly sat down with us for almost an hour. And we cut it down for you guys, so it's not that long. But it's super, super helpful. Yeah. You know, if you're out there and you're thinking about coming to conservatoire, or even if you're already at conservatoire and you, you want, you know some inspiration of why you're there this is a great podcast for that and just to hear about jonathan's story as well he's a yeah he's a great guy and remember you're not alone not alone i am here with you no no take that out (laughs) well hello thank you so much for your time and for joining us um would you like to tell our listeners a little bit about yourself Oh, God, where do I start? Well, when you gave me a page of questions, the first one you said was, can you remember your first musical experience? Mm. And I can, actually. Or maybe, I suppose as you get older, certain things become clearer in your mind. And one memory that's very clear is marching around a room in, when I must have been less than three. Because it was a house that we moved in when, uh, out of when I was about three. And I remember it was the, the march of the sketcher from Tchaikovsky's uh, Sixth Symphony. And my father used to play it on his old reel-to-reel. So I remember that. Bum, 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 and it used to become this sort of emblem of something that I really loved doing. So, mm. so music was sort of in there pretty early on. Yeah, in yeah. the family. Yeah. So that's an early one. But I suppose, uh, 
you know, one's constantly discussing the whole nature of context of music, you know. Mm. Is music something that you're born with or is it something in which your experience is sort of and your life is affected by hearing it when you're young? Is it a combination of the two? And of course we don't have either a scientific knowledge of, of what that is mm. from person to person. But I certainly feel that the context of being around a family where music was very important gave me a sort of stimulus to pursue it as something which was part of me. And I think that, uh, I don't think I had a, a particular sort of fantastic talent particularly that could be kind of uh, noticed in my early years. But I think it was a passion that came through the fact that there was a lot of music in the house. And I had a half-brother who was a very good violinist and a music teacher, a father who loved music more than anything else. And so it was all around. So by the time I got to sort of eight or nine, I wanted to start playing mm-hmm. a musical instrument and all that sort of thing. And what, what, what was it that you first Well, I played the piano yeah. to start with, but I could sing. And I was in a, my school choir. I realised that I could sing and I could sing in tune. And Very important. I loved it. It's quite important to, <laughs> to sing in tune. After that, I was chosen as one of the children to go on tour with the Glyndebourne Touring Opera. Oh, oh wow. Um, so that was great. And I, I had an enormous fun uh, not doing any academic work for a whole term. I was travelling <laughs> around the UK. Uh, in 1972, 1973, and uh, you know, it's the only time I've ever been paid to sing. And if you can hear me sing now, you'd realise that actually it's amazing that I was paid at all. But I could actually, before my voice broke, I was just reasonably uh, decent singer. So I actually have been on the same stage as Sir John Tomlinson in La Boheme. Oh, wow. Uh, and I did remind him of that, and uh, <laughs> I don't think he remembered me. They weren't, no. Your they, were the classic, they were classic music lovers, supporters, went to concerts, joined the local choir, you know, mm. all that sort of thing. But oh. not not professional musicians. Yeah, anyway. but obviously very supportive. Very supportive, very kind of, I would say, hugely, you know, the arts were a very important part of their, um, mm. their way of life in different ways. My mother... Uh, was a, uh, still alive actually very old he's a uh, you know, poet and a writer and my mm. f- father was a he was actually a, a soldier and a, and a businessman but, but the rest of his life was very much around things of you know cultural things that, that were important to him I mean to the students here at the mm. Royal Academy you're the principal but you've got many strings to your bow as a trumpeter music producer and broadcaster we wanted to know if it was always in the back of your mind to pursue education and mm. especially pursuing education to a very high standard? So, you know, I really didn't have a clue okay. what I wanted to do. <laughs> yeah. And a number of people say, you know, obviously you had your life was mapped out, but it wasn't, you know. I mean, I always say when we have sort of professional development days or my principles at the beginning of the year thing for the people leaving the institution, which is, happens in January, I always say, look, you know, I really didn't have a clue. And I'm talking about in my early 20s. I knew I could play the trumpet, I knew I needed to get better at it. I knew that uh, I had a reasonable brain and I had a great interest in music. I knew I had a great knowledge. Mm. Uh, I knew I enjoyed communicating. I knew I enjoyed teaching a bit, but I didn't know where it would end up. Mm. So I started my professional life really with a whole lot of freelance work in about six different things. I did a bit of writing for Gramophone, I did a bit of broadcasting. The producing thing started um, simply because you know, it's a usual thing. You know, somebody asks you to supervise a session, you realise, gosh, this is fun. <laughs> yes. And I loved, um, I loved 
recordings. I always had a huge interest in recordings. I mean, since I was 14, I used to work in a record shop in our local town and in the days when record shops existed yeah, and yeah. classical music record shops existed. <laughs> hey. um, well, was an, it wasn't a niche, it was actually just what was it there. It was there, yeah. exactly, yeah. So that meant, meant that I sort of had a, a passion for the idea of, of the, the, the artistic process of, of what it was to make something that allowed you to do your best every time and create a, a product that was a recording. So that became an interesting part. And so I suppose what happened is, you know, the playing started quite strongly. I was doing quite a lot. Then um, a bit more broadcasting came in and that put the playing back a bit. And then I did a bit more teaching. And then I got a bit of part-time work here, a little bit of part-time work at the Guildhall, actually. I'm mean, talking about my 20s. And, and, and actually the defining the real answer to your question mm-hmm. is the defining moment was in the in 1990 when the academy was looking for somebody who could look at the prospect of having a degree course in performance because in those days uh, if you wanted to do academic music you got to university and playing would be a kind of side wouldn't be assessed as part of the degree but it would be something you might do if you went off to a university music department and if you wanted to be a player then or a singer or a composer you'd come to a conservatoire and the academic stuff was not something that was considered to be a particularly coherent part of the vocational diet so to speak and because I'd had a a North American education uh, and a British education I had was seen as having somebody who could see how the two could be married in an effective and creative way. And I was very passionate about that principle, which is, and partly I'm sure, because I couldn't decide whether I wanted to be pigeonholed as an academic or a performer. I wanted to be both. And I thought, why can't I be both? Why can't I? Why why do I have to be pigeonholed as one or the other? And it was the perfect time, actually, for the principal um, of the time, Sir David Lumsden, who was in this room. I remember I was in my... He asked me and he said, look, can you create a course that will allow performers to feel as if one, that performance is a degree worthy, you know, to the whole principle and philosophy that good performance is an intellectual activity, deserves a degree, but you have to create within it certain uh, areas of critical investigation and, and the sort of relevant support that allows that performance to be realised in interesting ways. And I think and he gave me a year, he said, look, you know, if you create this course and it's a success and we see that it's going somewhere you can have a job here and if not then you How go, you go? <laughs> um, so I was given a year I think I made a bit of a hash of some things but certain things went fairly well and um, the, you know I've never left the, the place but I, I have to say the one thing that's been fantastic is that in every area of uh, or every stage of my life at the academy in different roles the people around me and the people above me have always supported my work outside and that is I'm incredibly grateful to and I hope I do the same for people you know here now is people Mm. who are hugely invested in the institution but who do have lives outside and who have professional research or performing lives you want to keep you know because that is you know the, the value of that is inestimable you know people come back from experiences and can look students in the eye and know what it's like to play and to perform and to be challenged by them all the different things that are going on in the world and so that has been a kind of mantra for me is mm. keeping enough space to keep stuff going outside so it kind of makes the building living and breathing at the same time as growing and yes and i think it's also the creative muse that yeah. is such an important part of this environment as well as frankly 
the, the knowledge of that awful word industry, but we do use it, you know, the knowledge of what what is shifting around in the in the world outside and it's changing all the time. Mm-hmm. And if you don't have a sense of, for instance, how the digital content of you know, people's work is changing and how it's being presented and how it's being disseminated, if you don't have a clue about what's happening and you don't have first-hand knowledge, um, then it's very hard to convey that persuasively and convincingly to students who are going into that world, um, mm. you know, the sharp end. Yeah. So then, doing all of that, building this curriculum and changing the school into what it is today, how did then become principal of the <laughs> academy? <laughs> no, well, that wasn't much to do with me. I think it was, I mean, I think, you know, what happens, it's like so, so many jobs, you know, you put your head down and you do what's required. I, I think what, the answer to the question is that I was made... Uh, vice principal um, in my early early 30s and it was at a time when the academy was sort of having a bit of a reboot I think and uh, Curtis Price came in who was uh, very the principal for me who was very successful and very good and very good at getting the academy's sort of core values back in shape and he was Mm. really good at making uh, encouraging people to to do what they do best, which is to teach and inspire students, and he was it was great. And so I was lucky enough to work um, with him for a long time. And I think the thing is that you know when you're in a job like this, there are you find yourself developing areas of expertise um, without you self-consciously kind of monitoring them or evaluating them. So you begin to understand the political environment, you begin to understand the funding environment, you begin to understand the way the sector works, not just the conservatoire sector, but the university sector as a whole, the higher education sector. So you begin also to understand how programmes of study work, how fundraising is so essential. You Mm. think you get a more nuanced idea about the changing needs of students, the student experience. You begin to understand how visiting artists can play an incredibly important part in uh, in defining certain aspects of your film. But even more important, you begin to understand that the central aspect of a conservatoire education is the one-to-one teaching and having first-rate people across the board um, yeah. offering that to people and learning to manage the kind of human resources challenges of an institution that is on one level, t- well, centrally, its mission is to teach, but it's also an art centre, you know, it's got Mm. audiences coming in. And so you build up a a paradoxical thing, which is a huge amount of knowledge in what is quite a small environment. Mm -hmm. And and I think experience counts for a lot. And I think, you know, to answer your question, uh, Avi, I think I got a a chance to be a runner and rider Mm. for principal because I knew the place pretty well. Uh, and I put my hat in the ring and, and yeah. you know, t- 12 years ago, almost to the day, I was up in 2007, I was appointed, so, yeah. um, but quite why and, and how, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, without a doubt, you've been at the Academy for a long time, as you 30 said. years, yeah, 30, 30 years. Gosh, yeah, yeah 1980, <laughs> I started teaching here in 1988, yeah. yeah. As you said, like, you've just developed so much knowledge experience in different areas how would you say that the academy has evolved from your first day of being here very interesting question i think it's the range of new when i started we didn't have jazz well we no we didn't we didn't have jazz we didn't have musical theater we didn't have all sorts of things we didn't have degree programs we didn't have outside concert programs we did i mean you know it was a different world it was Mm. a very it was a sort of um 
was more laissez-faire. I'm sure there were mm. certain aspects of the academy then that had were a bit less intense. Mm. You know, I think this place can become a little bit too intense sometimes. You mm. need to, yeah. you've got to release it. Yeah. And I think in those days there wasn't students didn't do as much, and you know, uh, and that was great in one sense because they had more time to, to reflect on the work. Yeah. Uh, but now, of course, it's it's a it's a it's a different. You know, we're so much more conscious of providing absolutely the right vocational apparatus and uh, for each student and of course it's um, connected so much more to the industry and to the professional environment so that's been a huge difference as I was saying and just new buildings you know I mean the fact is yeah. when when I started working here there was this building yeah. there was no York Gate there was no Joseph Seffert Hall there was no um, practice rooms in the void yeah. there was no Abrook Street there was or no cross keys there was no um, uh, St. Mark's, you know, let alone the theatre. Yeah, like yeah. that's the So, uh, or the ABRH. So, you know, you've got seven new kind of outlets and buildings there. So it was a very different... But then there were... I suppose the other answer to the question is there were 450 students as opposed to yeah. 850. Or <laughs> so it was, a, it was a very different world. But I think, by and large, what happened in those days is that you had a bit of... You had your one-to-one teaching. You had orchestra... You had a bit of chamber music. I'm talking about uh, yeah, string players, for instance. Yeah. And there were other things taught, but they weren't sort of connected in a kind of um, narrative of education that now is, of course, part of the whole programme kind of ethos and culture. Yes. So it's changed immeasurably. Um, and I like to think that the place is more global now. Uh, it's more... I think there's been a huge shift in gender, I think, which has been incredibly important to the way in which... Very pleased that in the, since I've been principal, and I should say, you know, this has just happened because the best people have, you know, in the case of senior appointments have been women, but we've got so many strong, really capable, top-draw women in, in running. We just appointed the new dean of students uh, yeah, as well, yes. so the SMT yeah. is going to be four women and two blokes, you know. Changing so, those numbers so, around. <laughs> so uh, you know, and and you know, you look at the heads of departments and see the rate, and I think that has made a huge uh, difference. Uh, bringing uh, when I talk about global, I think I'm talking about the fact that we always had an international profile. We've had an international profile for 200 years. We were founded by. Um, it was the first conservatory of its kind that was built. Exactly. For the purpose of being a conservatory. Exactly. Yeah. Precisely. And as a result of that, it's always had a very cosmopolitan feel, and that's why we feel so strongly about our international uh, in this funny Brexit period. Yeah. Um, so it's a really important, a really important part of the the way the institution evolves is mm. its its sense that it's there for anybody, you know, mm. for anyone who has talent, whatever their background, wherever they come from, yeah, whatever their nationhood. If this is the right place for them, and it's their conservatoire of choice. And it can be a place where they realise their potential. Mm. Then we, re, you know, we receive them with open arms, and that's always been the case. The reason that we actually asked you to come onto this mm. podcast: why someone would necessarily need to go to a conservatoire for education versus just university, university music school, for yeah. education. Which is how you said it used to be. It used to be. That yeah. You just well, I think you know that certain things still apply. I think, which is, uh, you know, people always say to me when they audition or haven't decided whether they want to go to university or conservatoire, and my basic qu- uh, answer to that is, if you're not sure, you probably go to university. Because the great thing about university is you've got time to hone your craft and your art and to critique the materials in front of you to immerse yourself in the breadth and range of musical study. 
keep your playing going at as high a level as you can if that interests you. So I think that is a viable route for a lot of people. But people who come and audition and the only thing they want is to be a performer or a composer, that all, that's what they live for. Mm then this is what this place, you know, for undergrads, this is the place, I, you know, I mean, I would say I'm being highly biased, but this is a fabulous place for people to come if they find the teacher they want and to immerse themselves in a busy, vibrant, challenging, hopefully very supportive environment where over four years they can really get themselves into a position where they are able to pursue their creative interests to follow an innovative career to be versatile and to put bread on the table you know (laughs) so i think that would be the basic thing i think the real interesting thing is it's all about advice you give people and the most important advice you can give to young people is is not to tell people what to do but to get them to find out themselves what's right for them so any conservatoire, any music teacher, any headmaster who says you should do this is, in my mind, completely barking up the wrong tree. Mm-hmm. What I always do at auditions is say to people, just do your homework. It's, it's so much out there. You're in London. There are all sorts of places you can go to. Find the one for you. Do your research. Talk to students. Don't talk to me. Talk to students. Talk to people who are living it. Yeah. Talk to and find out what environment is right, mm. whether the teachers and the, the kind of study, the way that people collaborate, the values of the institution. You know, they are on one level between all the conservatoires in London and elsewhere, they're very similar. In others, they're very, very different. The, the atmosphere, the way in which people operate together, the types of people who come in, the way in which all the disciplines work, the way in which the days unfold. You know, it's, it's, mm. a, it's, a, it's a wonderful time for place for people to to see what's what's right for them so I think that's the, uh, an important point I think the other one is you know university music departments they have playing you know they have performance but let's be under no illusions you know the th- reason the conservatoires are putting uh, and why this place is putting so many people into work well or putting so many people into a position where they are equipped to work yeah, yeah. is because we teach musical music for the very purpose of equipping you for a professional life. So you can go into a, um, a rehearsal with the sole purpose in the three hours of playing the beginning of Schumann II in tune, in the right place, with the right blend, with the right textures, understanding where the particular traditions allow a particular approach to a certain type of playing. That in itself, doing it for, for, you know, for the, simply for the end game of being able to master those skills. When you go to university, you don't have that because that's not what universities do. Mm-hmm. Now, you may be doing Schumann too, but Schumann too will be preparing for a concert. Yeah. Yeah, which might be quite good, or as somebody who went to university, it probably isn't that good, but it's a lot of fun. But it's a yeah. recreational thing. And yes. I'm not saying that all music making at university is beta minus, but I'm just saying no. it does because there are some very good players at university. But what I am saying is the raison d'etre for any rehearsal here is of course that there's often a concert at the end of it, but often there isn't, and it's there to teach you the skills and to teach you the protocols and all the different aspects of professional um, equipment. Yeah, requ- working required. in a professional environment. Yeah. yeah. I think it's also really important to say that we are, as a conservatory, open, opening our doors to concerts for many different people, but they can go to, since we're in the heart of London, mm. they can pick to go to Wigmore Hall, so if 
it's kind That's of right. like how do you yeah, convince yeah. them to not go to Wigmore Hall <laughs> and come see a orchestral um, concert here? Yeah, I think actually going back to your question, I yeah. think um, you know one of the things is that has changed hugely in the last twenty years is how this place has become a kind of honeypot of audiences coming and following particular departments. Yeah. And you know, look at musical theatre. I mean, they're always sold out. Opera always sold out. The Bach series on a Sunday, yeah. uh, you know, once a month. Um, that's been going on. We were now just about to start our twelfth year in. in Which you also started that. Um, I did, yeah, and you know that. So that's got a huge following now. And then we've started two new chamber series up in the ABRH and the DJ, and so so you've got audiences coming in. But what is it that excites them? Why do would they come? Well, they come because we've got a really interesting diary of events. But the most important thing is it's the students now who are shaping so much what is in that diary yeah. in terms of the programmes. And what is more exciting than a young person of talent putting together a programme and performing in front of the public? You know, I mean, it's, it's fantastic because I spend my life uh, you know, hearing music that I've known for 30, 40 years being completely transformed by some young person who's got a view. I find often absolutely captivating sometimes misguided sometimes a bit of both you know but that it's never dull it's always fresh there's always and of course the ideal and question I always ask is how can we ensure that people here who are so full of energy so full of creativity can take that out and keep that creativity going into their professional lives and not it being sort of sullied by the kind of um, potential that that familiarity breeds contempt and that suddenly after 20 years you've got a, a lot of rather bored musicians, you know. Yeah. And giving people the fuel to be able to, to self-motivate is mm. a really important part of the professional environment here, I think, the creative mm. artist development culture. And that's something we haven't cracked, but we're really taking very seriously here, is building, you know, what is a 21st century musician? It's not somebody who sits waiting for the telephone to ring. It's not somebody who just yeah. has one single line of, of work but it's somebody who can self-generate, self-reflect, get change direction when it's needed, and have that resourcefulness and resilience to do that. And by doing that, not only satisfying themselves in their work, but actually making a real impact in the professional world in defining what a musician is, mm -hmm. you know? And a musician is somebody who is, you know, who is proudly goes out and exudes all those wonderful qualities that music can deliver and communicate. And it's not just about a kind of a template of predictability and all those sorts of things. That, that's why I walk in here after 31 and a half years <laughs> with a spring in my step, because yeah. there is so many exciting things going on. I mean, we've covered you know, so many things that is great about the Academy, but I guess um, the vision of conservatoires is will be quite similar between across the conservatoires across the country um, and the world and yeah. the world yeah, yeah. yeah exactly um, what would you say is so unique about the academy i'll come off the fence um <laughs> I, th I think the academy has got um uh, i think it's a very open place and i think that means that our strengths are very obvious and i think probably our failings are pretty obvious what i like to think is if there are failings, then you can put things right quite quickly here if yeah. you're open and communicative and honest and, and all that. All of us, you know. Um, because I really believe that the, the academies at its best is where all of us together trust each other, which doesn't mean everything's going to go well all the time because that's not the way the world works. But that between us, 
when in good and when things are when we all struggle to kind of get on to the next level of what we want to accomplish you know it requires a trust and a real sense of 100% commitment from everybody and responsibility from everybody to collaborate and give uh, give the best to make the most of the potential and that's how i think people are the happiest as well and that means that it goes against a lot of what higher education is in this country which has become a quite a highly regulated transactional environment and I see how it has to be people are paying money and they want value and they want return and I completely understand that but the nature of the best education is not transactional actually it's mm. based on everybody giving what they believe is the very very best at all times and that is where success however you manage success whether it's life fulfillment or singing on the Met, at the stage at the Met that is not done by a set of box ticking transactional arrangements it's done by a set of much more elusive and you know it's about human beings relating you know and you can't you can't write about that you can't articulate that in no. ways and that's where the best stuff happens in this place now I'm sure it happens at all the other colleges as well but I th like to think that those people who enter into the spirit get a sort of added value here through it the innovation the creativity the warmth yeah. I love the fact that in this environment you could in this building uh, you can walk around you can't really walk around and not look people in the eye it's, it's the, very difficult it's, yeah. it, there aren't those corridors where you can just disappear down um, you know you have you have to communicate you have to collaborate yeah. there's so, a warmth when you walk into this building yes. that you feel like from the second you walk past those glass doors you already know everyone yeah, yeah. I mean I think that there are certain things also about this place that you, I think we help people to think now from the word go about um, what being professional means I think yes. there's, it is an environment where we ask ourselves early and we're not shy about that. I think uh, if there's certain things we've got to be careful of in this place, and I'm talking to tutors and heads of departments, is just getting people just sometimes to slow down because we're in an environment where everybody is moving at a million miles an hour. And I, you know, whether it's to do with the social media environment or the technology and the way in which technology has affected our lives. Who knows? I mean, one could write books about it. But I do think that, that getting people to understand that there is everybody in this building is different and everybody goes at a different rate and everyone's going to end up in a different place. And respecting that idea is something that it doesn't mean it isn't sometimes competitive, it is. But we need to, we need to realize that. The, the competitive element is needs to be kept in check because ultimately the individual journey and how that pans out and the responsibility we all have to each other to respect the individual journey is a key part of a really a really healthy environment mm. uh, and not we all know that there's going to be a pecking order when you see uh, in the auditions on who's going to be leading orchestras and who's going to be playing first flute and you know that's life you know get used to it <laughs> but yeah. in other aspects of the student experience there's so much in which individuals can hone if they engage with this place and that is that takes two to tango it takes the institution to make it more readily available and it takes the students to be brave and to use the support and all the resources that are there. And we just need to keep communicating that and make sure that um, we're delivering a coherent package to as, yeah. as many people as possible. Which leads us into our next question really well, because I remember you saying this on, on my first day of school here, which was use the building, use the resources yes. we have. 
is that really your biggest advice for a new coming student into the academy? Yes, I think it is. I think along with, yeah, use the place, uh, don't, it comes back to what I was saying, don't compare yourself to other people. I mean, I, I think maybe that's the blindingly obvious thing, but I mean, just, just don't. Um, and have patience uh, and belief in yourself, you know. And that's what I mean by using the building. Have, ask yourself what you want, because the only way you're going to actually be happy in your profession is to have truth in your own identity. Mm-hmm. And not trying to feel that you should be somebody else that you're not, because that uh, that won't work. Uh, and that again comes back to the thing about not being in a hurry, being patient. And I think it comes down to a really interesting point, which is when you're a musician, you're not going into it in order to make a lot of money. You may end up making a lot of money, but you may not. But the point is that your vocation uh, is your profession, but it's also your way of life. Mm-hmm. So there's an awful, lovely kind of crunch there. And it's a, a both one that is uh, a gift, and it can, if it's mishandled, can be a bit of a tyranny. So, you know, that whole thing about um, using the building, it's beginning to understand where your priorities lie in what stimulates you, what gifts you have, identifying the gifts you have, how you can make them go as far as possible, who in the building can help you to realise those gifts and making sure that you really pursue them and that people are, uh, become, because teachers here and uh, professors and lecturers and so on, they, they all, they're most stimulated, I speak from experience, from people whose, whose interest and identity become, you know, are articulated and can be noticed as being some things that we can work on together. So if, we, if they're clouded and they're veiled and we don't know what they are, it's very hard to realise talent. So it's trying to get people to come out and broaden uh, you know, their vision of what they can get from the academy, uh, rather than just having you know, their hour and hour and a half lesson with so-and-so and coming out and then yeah. getting to the practice room and then turning up to orchestra. And then, you know, I mean that, that's an old-fashioned view of how you think as a musician. And it comes back to what we were saying before about how you equip yourself in the round to be a real advocate for music when you get out there, and a real champion for music, and not just a kind of pawn for, to be kind of fitted into a profession mm. that is changing, you know. Well, speaking about um, once you come out of the academy, mm. uh, which, I mean, we may not leave, but we're both graduating this year. I know you are, um, yeah. So what would I'll be come. your advice um, to a student graduating at the academy? I think the most important thing is to take everything that you've got and ask yourself, again, what what I was saying with regard to your studentship, where your priorities lie in the things that get you out of bed with us in the morning. What is it that, you know, identify what those things are and don't lose your nerve in being able to keep those goals and those dreams alive, okay? Then you may not realise all of them, but if you've got them and they're important to you, the chances of you realising them are far more likely, okay? With any luck, you'll be so well-equipped in certain ways that you're not even aware of. You know, after three or four years, you will find that you've got a sort of resilience, a kind of strength, a core professionalism. All the things that, that are, you know, you are, you know, to be a graduate of the academy, you've had to really work hard. And you've yeah, had, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and you've got, so you've got so much more than you think. But of course, we all know that the world is full of anxiety. And it's very hard, you can't just say to somebody, don't be anxious. 
But I think what you can say to people is that all over the world, people are leaving college and they're going into a sort of, uh, you know, a, an unknown territory. And so my biggest advice is just believe in what you've got. Follow your dreams, but also realise that those dreams may not be realisable for quite a while. And you wouldn't believe, you know, it comes back as we started this, this discussion, you know, the, it, people always say, well, you're principal of the academy, you must have, you know, kind of had a silver spoon in your mouth and you must have just kind of sailed into the profession. You have no idea some of the stuff when I left that I would do in order to make sure that I could actually pay the rent and stuff. I mean, I used to do ridiculous... I, I used to do things like play gigs in places which I'd never heard of without re realising that actually to get there was costing more than the fee I was going to get, you know, but I reckon I should do it because it would just keep me busy and it, I might meet somebody who'd help me, you know, all that stuff, you know, mm -hmm. and uh, and I used to do write for, you know, I used to do all sorts of stuff, you know, that, that people, I felt I wasn't necessarily trained to do, mm -hmm. but was part of that whole idea of being versatile and the thing that musicians can do, which is they can kind of turn their hand to anything if they need to. Mm -hmm. And what happens is if you follow the, if you just keep to the right habits. I think that's the other answer to the question. Right. Just keep good habits, good habits of practice, good habits of engendering sort of healthy lifestyle, you know, making sure that you've got self-respect so that you can go into the challenges, really feeling as if you're you're giving yourself the best chance. Mm. That's another bit of advice, because it's easy when you're on your own and there isn't the structure of the academy anymore, for you to sort of slightly, um, I've not got off the rails exactly, but to sort of think that that second best will do because there's, you know, there isn't really the momentum to, to keep you going on on mm. your kind of premier uh, route. But I would, I would also finally just say, if you leave, it doesn't mean you're cut off from being advised or having friendship. You know, one thing I think that is wonderful about the academy is that the friendships are, long, are lifelong. Definitely. And they're lifelong between students and staff as well as students and students and staff and staff. Yeah. And there are so many students that I speak to in all walks of uh, the profession who have been out for a year, two years, five years, ten years, who I'm constantly talking to, who are helping me to get a vision of something that's going on out there, or I'm helping and giving a little contact to them if they're going down in a certain direction. And so just because you leave doesn't mean that you can't keep in touch, that you can't come back into the building and talk to people, because, you know, it, it's... It's hard enough to build a profile in this profession, and we all want you to succeed. And if we can all just help to kind of move things along, then you know that's something where 100% of the staff will provide mm. that kind of um, willing assistance. Yeah, it's very comforting to hear. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you very, very, very much Not for being all. here and for doing this with us. I found that so 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 helpful I don't know about you but it was just the perfect thing to hear at this time of year really motivating and I think he's one of those people that is in such a position to step back and do his thing but he's so approachable and he gave us so much of of him it yeah was amazing we're, yeah we're very very lucky to have him as a as the principal of our school um, because he is so so supportive and we're very thankful for the time that he gave because I've, I'd have to say this is probably one of the most helpful podcasts that we've ever recorded so far. So far. Thus far. Uh, thus far. Uh, and we hope you agree. Hope you found it helpful. Yeah, so thank you very much. But now it's time for... My fun fact! Da-da-da-da-da-da! Okay, so um, this 
fun fact is about a specific opera but it's quite fitting because we we're all very ha- very excited should i say for it to come to the royal opera house in march um so it's- does that mean we have tickets no does no. anyone want to give us tickets waiting <laughs> tumbleweed <laughs> how do cricket sound how do you make it sound like a cricket well, I played the grasshopper in Vixen, if you remember. Right. And I decided that that sound was just like a... <laughs> no, I can't do it. Like, imagine you're in a really hot country and, like, the sound of the, you know, the... I can't, I can't yeah. do it. I'm going to return to my fun facts right. um, about Beethoven's Fidelio. And it took Beethoven 11 years to write it. Obviously, that was his one opera. Yeah, he only wrote one. But I think doing the same one for eleven years really made him. Uh... Yeah, but I mean that just shows how, how much of a perfectionist he was when it came to to the opera. And the amount of dedication that he had to make sure that it was good. Mm. I really want to see it. It's so expressive. It's so expressive. I really want to see it. you have been here for a while and this is actually your season two and not your season one we are accepting of everyone but just saying we are changing things around and we are not going to tell you what is going on outside yeah i mean the bottom line is is that it was just quite limiting because we were only ever really talking about what was on in london and we are quite aware that we've got listeners actually all over the world internationally yeah, we have an so international podcast we do um so we thought it better leave the floor open a little bit more and we're going to ask you guys it'll be on our instagram story actually what do you what else do you want us to to do in this section of the podcast but today in replacement of that we've got a good project underway that we want to tell you about so we would love to take this podcast out of a royal academy of music practice room so our biggest dream at the moment is to get you guys more involved and we are planning to record some podcasts live l-i-v-e live (laughs) (laughs) um in front of a studio audience yeah that's it but i mean as i think we want this podcast aa opera to be an interactive community and we think a way to really get that off the ground is having a live podcast. Yes. And it will be in London. It will be in London because we are based in London. And we are also planning to have more than just the podcast and have some music for you there. So please keep your eyes opened and keep your ears clean so you can hear all about where it is and when it is because information about that will be coming to you very very soon and this is very much in the planning process as well and so if you have any particular artists that you'd be interested in seeing we can't make any promises but we want to know what you would want out of that AA Opera Live showing. Yeah. Um, and it would be a great chance for us to meet you guys as well. Yeah. Um, so very exciting. More news on the way. Stay tuned. Stay tuned. It's time for the question. What's the question? The question is, what are you looking forward to in 2020? So much. So, so much. Well, new, new year, new me, new decade, new me, hashtag, hashtag, all the way. New. Um, <laughs> but we asked you guys, you know, what 
what is good for you? We've talked about some exciting things for AA Opera. Some of you got in touch with what you're looking forward to in 2020, which was lovely to hear. Start with people at the opera. People at the opera are very excited about going to the opera at least once a week or more. I wish I could go once a week or more. Well, yeah, I know. Could you imagine? We'd have to get, like, rush tickets every single week. And my good friend, Alabama Jackson, says she's looking forward to the rise of veganism. (laughs) Which, do you know what? I'm actually all game for the rise of veganism if they keep bringing out things like the Greg Steak Bake, Papa John's, new vegan menu, sausage and pepperoni, vegan pizza. Like, how is that even possible? Um, but if they keep bringing out things like that, then I am, I'd am i go vegan. Not sponsored. Yeah, not sponsored, but Papa John's, because of course you're listening to, a- to AA Opera Podcast. Italian, Italians like opera. Opera <laughs> is an Italian, therefore Papa John's should support us. Um, yeah, so I'm all for the rise of veganism. And then one opera on the lake said our performance of Die Lusting Witwe this July. Check it out, guys. I don't know opera. Well, that's the end of episode one of AA Opera Podcast season two. Oh, yeah. (laughs) And we'll be back next week with another very special guest. Mm -hmm. So stay tuned. Don't forget to um, rate this podcast and subscribe to this podcast and like this podcast. Just everything you can to connect yourself to this podcast. (laughs) Do it. Yeah. Instagram, (laughs) Twitter, Facebook. We are there. We shall see you next week. Bye-bye, guys. Bye-bye.